letter eight. I, I know I said this about letter six. I know I said this about letter seven, but this really may be one of my favorite uh, letters in the whole thing. I, I, I'm starting, you guys are starting to not believe me because I say that every letter is my favorite, but this one, uh, you'll see. Letter eight, <clears throat> my dear Wormwood. So you have great hopes that the patient's religious phase is dying away, have you? Ugh. Uh, you'll notice uh, Screwtape is becoming increasingly frustrated at how naive Wormwood is. Naive always thinks, oh, things are going great. I'm going to have this patient, you know, completely trapped. And it's all because of my doing. I remember he thought that like uh, when the war started, that was just going to be great. And Screwtape keeps trying to get him to realize, listen, it's about how can we take advantage of this stuff? That's what's important to remember when it comes to temptation, when it comes to our circumstances, uh, Satan doesn't really care. And in, in, in many instances, Satan doesn't really care about the circumstances we care a lot about. He cares about how he can use the circumstances to try to draw you away from God. You know, the simplest example I can think of is uh, when it comes to, to finances. I, I know this may shock you, but I, I don't think, I don't think Satan cares, uh, if you are rich or poor, as long as he can use your wealth to lead you into depending on yourself, or he can lead your poverty, uh, uh, he can use your poverty into uh, making you very covetous or even being tempted to steal. In fact, there's a Proverbs, in, in Proverbs 30, uh, the writer of the Proverbs says, give, he prays to God, give me neither poverty nor riches, because he's aware of the dangers. He's like, if you give me, if you give me riches, I may get puffed up, and I'm paraphrasing here, but basically say, who is the Lord? You know, why, why should I need God? And if you give me poverty, then I may be tempted to steal. So give me just my daily bread. Very wise. So I know we're, we're one sentence in here to the letter, but I hope you take encouragement that uh, uh, Screwtape's tactic is how he can use all these circumstances, not just what the circumstances are. Well, here he uh, takes a pot shot at one of the fellow demons. And again, Lewis is just inventing uh, th these names. I, I always thought that the training college had gone to pieces since they put old slub gob at the head of it. And now I am sure. And just a minute, I'll show you. He's going to pay for that remark uh, later in the book. But uh, he's saying, you know, basically Wormwood, uh, you know, like, like, like they used to joke a generation ago. Hey, hey, where'd you get your driver's license out of a Cracker Jack box? You know, it's the same kind of thing. Hey, 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 Wormwood, where, where'd you get your training? Oh, of course, old Slub Gob, the principal of the, uh, I guess, the, the training college, the devil's version of seminary, how they train up their demons. Uh, he takes a takes a shot at, at Slub Gob. Slub Gob. He's like, come on, what are they teaching you? Has no one ever told you about the law of undulation? You hear he's very condescending to Wormwood. Has nobody ever taught you about this this law? This is like, come on, Wormwood, you should know this. He's always getting frustrated. This is like tempting 101. You've got to know about the law of undulation. What a great word. From the Latin, und, uh, the, uh, the word means a wave. Undus, probably. I think that's the Latin word. Undus. Unda? Eh. Anyway, um, he uh, 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 the, the word means uh, the wave-like pattern. Undulation. And uh, uh, he, he says, this is basic to understanding how to tempt a human being. He writes, humans are amphibians, half spirit, half animal. That's a great sentence. Uh, I think theologically, I get his point uh, uh, that we exist, you know, we, ha we have this spiritual part of us, but we also have these physical bodies. 
Uh, I would just qualify it a little bit and say uh, George McDonald, who was a great influence on C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis uh, points to McDonald as having, um, I think he calls him his master, his uh, uh, teacher. George McDonald wrote, you don't have a soul, you are a soul. You have a body. And so I, I'm just uh, uh, pointing that out to, to try to get a little bit of a, a doctrine around body and soul. The soul is the part of a person that exists eternally. Your soul is eternal. It will exist in one of two places for eternity. Uh, uh, you, you might, it gives great importance to how we treat one another and to how we think about the value of every human life. The word of God is going to last forever, and a human soul is going to last forever. That's who you are. That's why in the Old Testament, uh, when um, uh, Rachel is, uh, she dies in childbirth, it says her soul departed from her. That's why the Bible can say to be, at, when we die, to be absent, a believer dies, right? Well, where are they? The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that's why our soul is present with the Lord. You have a body. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about body and soul, about how our soul animates our body. We'll leave that uh, for another time, another discussion. Both body and soul are very important in, uh, in uh, uh, the Christian understanding. But nonetheless, with, with, with all that qualification said, humans are, are amphibians, half spirit, half animal. And then he, here he takes a, a shot at God. The enemy's determination to produce such a revolting hybrid was one of the things that determined our father to withdraw his support from him. Uh, Screwtape is uh, uh, talking about Satan being cast down from heaven. He's obviously um, uh, taking a very favorable view of what happened. You know, as if as if Satan said, "Yes, I'm gonna I'm gonna withdraw my support." Ha. More like you were kicked out. Uh, this is like somebody who gets fired from work for doing something awful. And later they give the report as if to say, well, yes, I, I decided I would no longer want to be associated with that company. It's like, yeah, right, buddy. You got fired. And that's here. That, 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 that's what's going on here. Uh, yes, uh, Satan decided to withdraw his support. Yeah, right. You were thrown out. But, uh, but he says... He was so angry about this half-spirit, half-animal uh, creature, this thing called human being. As spirits, uh, let's continue reading, as spirits, they belong to the eternal world, but as animals, they inhabit time. This means that while their spirit can be directed to an eternal object, their bodies, passions, and imaginations are in continual change, for to be in time means to change. Now, you got to kind of let that soak in, but that's really true. Even from the time I started filming this video nine or ten minutes ago, I'm nine or ten minutes older. Uh, I have uh, I have new words that are fresh in my mind. Maybe in the last nine or ten minutes, you've read something out of this book that is that has changed something in in your way of thinking. Uh, uh, to be in time means to change, and so the nearest approach to constancy, uh, Lewis writes. In other words, the, the closest we can get to not undulating, to not having that wave-like pattern. Uh, the nearest approach, therefore, is undulation. Uh, uh, sorry, I should have said their nearest approach to constant, constancy is not chaos, it's undulation, that wave-like pattern. The repeated return to a level 
from which they repeatedly fall back. Repeated return, repeated fall back, repeated return, and so forth. It looks like a series of troughs and peaks. Now, if you'd watched your patient carefully, you would have seen this undulation in every department of his life. His interest in work, his affection for his friends, his physical appetites, all go up and down. That's really true, isn't it? You know, we go through sort of these phases where we're really into uh, some physical activity or something. Then we're, we're really into uh, this, this particular hobby or, 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 or we're all in on this uh, group of friends. And then we go through a period where we, lost, we, we lose touch and even our physical appetites, right? We, man, we, we're really into, you know, <laughs> salads for like a week, but we're really into pizza for like a year anyway. Uh, but they all go up and down. As long as he lives on earth, periods of emotional and bodily richness and liveliness will alternate with periods of numbness and poverty. So the dryness and dullness through which your patient, Wormwood, is now going are not, as you fondly suppose, your workmanship. They're merely a natural phenomenon, which will do us no good unless you make a good use of it. And here we are again. He, I hope that this paragraph is encouraging. Uh, what he's saying is the, the idea that you go through phases in life and where you, you have these you have these mountaintops, then you have these troughs. Uh, that's not that's not necessarily the work of any demon. That's just what it means to be human. That's true in every area of your life. Uh, I, I find that very encouraging, especially because how many uh, youth camps have I preached at? Uh, over the years. And one of the biggest fears is students who've come to summer camp, they come to church camp summer after summer. A lot of them come, if they've done it enough, with this fear. And the fear is they have this spiritual mountaintop experience. You know, they get so fired up for the Lord. They pay attention to Bible studies and sermons. They're, they're away from their phones and their distractions for a week of youth camp. They really pour into each other and they have these great sort of unifying uh, community building times as, as a church youth group. And by the closing night of youth camp, they're just fired up. You know, they're going to do away with all sin in their life. They're going to repent from all that sin. They're, 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 Jesus is 100% the Lord of their life, and they're never going to sin again. They're going to go back to their home church, do a backflip off the balcony, and clothesline the devil, right? You know, they're, just, they're just fired up. And then a few weeks go by. You might say, quote, unquote, real life uh, sets in. And uh, they don't find themselves in the same environment of the spiritual mountaintop. And now they're in a, they're in a trough period. And they're brokenhearted by this. And they think, you know, what happened? Well, the first thing that might encourage them is to know, first of all, that, that that's part of human life. That, that's not some great, necessarily some great spiritual failure. It's just part of what it means uh, to be human. That we don't, we don't live on the, the mountaintop, on these mountaintop experiences all the time. It's just part of being human. I hope that's encouraging. He goes on. So the point then for, for Screwtape is not, oh, okay, so he's having a trough period and, and here Wormwood's getting all excited because he thinks his patient is in a real low place. He's saying, whoa, 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 that's just a trough period. So the question is, how do we make use of it? To decide, let's continue, to decide what the best use of it is, you must ask what use the enemy wants to make of it, then do the opposite. His advice to Wormwood here is careful now. Your patient's in a trough period. It doesn't mean he's going to give up on Christianity. It doesn't mean he's going to fade away. We got to figure out what to do with this uh, trough period. Now, it may surprise you to learn that in his efforts to get permanent possession of a soul, 
he, meaning God, Screwtape's enemy, relies on the troughs even more than on the peaks. Some of his special favorites have gone through longer and deeper troughs than anyone else. And here you might think of Job. Uh, when uh, Satan comes and, and uh, asks for permission to mess with Job, he says, you know, th there's nobody righteous. There's nobody loves you. Remember, God says, have you considered my servant Job? And Job has to walk through all this uh, suffering. What about the apostle Paul, who went through all these sufferings? It seems like that's, what, that, that's the kind of person Screwtape is referring to. Some of his favorites went through deep trough periods. Now, I would, I would make one other note about that sentence we just read. Uh, when he says, it may surprise you that God's goal in God's goal to get a permanent possession of a soul. We've touched on this before. I'll just touch on this briefly and move on. Over and over in the Screwtape letters, remember Screwtape naively thinks that a person can lose their salvation. Uh, uh, I, I, I don't think that's true. Um, Screwtape, uh, again, there's wishful thinking in, in Screwtape's uh, reasoning. Um, and so he assumes that God's mm, strategy is to get permanent possession of a soul because at any point he may come back to the enemy's territory. Again, I don't think that's true, but nonetheless, Screwtape's strategy doesn't change because remember the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. Screwtape's thinking, what if this is one of those, those seeds that fell? The, the seed is the word of God, right? What if the seed of God fell, but this patient's heart was like the, the rocky soil where it, it shoots up really fast, but then fades away because there was never really a true conversion. And so he's, he's going to go after that with all hopes that he can, he can somehow uh, get him that way, that he'll turn out to be one of those folks who never really had saving faith. Um, either way, let's just, again, I don't, I don't want to belabor that point. I've made it. If you can go back and watch uh, earlier videos, I unpacked that a little more. But uh, the point is he wants, to, he wants to bring this guy down. And he's saying God will use the trough periods in a Christian's life to help mature them and to grow them. And that's a real problem for Screwtape. Here's why. He says the reason is this. Why would, why would God take a Christian that he loves and put him through a down period, put him through a, a trough? You know, that, that, that's what a depression is, right? A, a, a down time. Why would he do that? Why would he put a Christian that he loves through suffering? He says the reason is this. To us, a human is primarily food. Our aim is the absorption of its will into ours, the increase of our own area of selfhood at its expense. That is a chilling and perfectly accurate definition of Satan's goal. In, in fact, the New Testament says, right, he, your, your adversary, Satan, is going around like a like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. It's just like when it comes to me and, and, and an apple. Uh, I'm going to be united with this apple. I, I, I'm gonna, my selfhood is going to increase by the caloric content as, I, as I'm nourished by that apple. But the apple is utterly subsumed into me. It, it retains none of its individuality. You know what I mean? I don't eat an apple and somehow that apple retains its appleness and maybe appears here on my shoulder in a big lump and that apple maintains. No, 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 no. It's completely absorbed nutritionally uh, uh, by me. And so it has to be utterly destroyed and absorbed. That's Satan's plan for what he wants to do to a human being. Absorb that human just, just as food. So he wants to be united to the human, but the human loses all individuality. 
uh, think of how nature is red in tooth and claw. The, uh, the, the strong devour the weak. That's hell. That's uh, uh, Satan's goal. But God has a whole different plan. But the obedience which the enemy demands of man is quite a different thing. And here, Screwtape gets theological, and he's going to pay for this later. I'll, I'll, I'll show you. This is actually a really beautiful passage that leads us to praise God. And I, I don't think he, he intends to say all that he says here. Here's what he writes. The obedience which the enemy demands of men is quite a different thing. One must face the fact. Screwtape can think of no other alternative. Why doesn't God just want to absorb all the humans into his will? Like food. Well, one must face the fact that all the talk about his love for men and his service being perfect freedom is not, as one would gladly believe, mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. In other words, Screwtape, you remember from Matthew 4, in, in Satan's temptation of Jesus, uh, Satan knows the scriptures. So we presume here, Screwtape knows the scriptures. He's heard the things that Jesus would say. And Jesus wants people who freely follow him out of love. Power can force obedience. Uh, Philip Yancey uh, uh, says this somewhere, something like power can force obedience, but only love can summon a response of love. And so when he says something, you know, like Jesus says, you know, come follow me. Whoever loses his life, he's the one who will find it. You know, you, you'll find true freedom in following me in complete obedience to me will be your freedom. Satan's going, apparently that's really true. He, he really does. That, that is absolutely what he wants. He really does. Let's continue reading. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself. Creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own. In other words, he, he really he really wants to, to populate the world like, like, like with Adam and Eve. These co-regents that are going to rule and reign with him forever that take on the character of God. He really does want to fill the world with, with people who are more and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, who love freely and who, who, who love one another and are, are rid of all uh, uh, sin and selfishness. That, that, that really is what he wants. So he writes, he, he wants them to be qualitatively like himself, not because he has absorbed them, but because they freely conform to his. Uh, excuse me, not because he has absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. See, we want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. Our war aim is a world in which our Father below has drawn all other beings into himself. The enemy wants a world full of beings united to him, but still distinct. You know, that's an incredible passage. Forcing someone, uh, uh, even if you could, forcing obedience is very, you know, when you parent a little child, forcing obedience at a young age, you know, training them and, 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 and forcing uh, 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 them and, and threatening them with, with grounding or being punished if they don't or rewarding that. Um, that's one thing. But when a child obeys because they truly love and want to follow the parent's leadership, everybody knows that's a qualitatively very different kind of obedience. Um, 
You know, I think of the example of, of uh, uh, back in the day before seatbelt laws and before car seats and all that, you know, long ago when uh, little kids could, could ride in the front seat. I remember hearing the story about a uh, a mom who's uh, driving and her little child uh, uh, was was standing in the front seat of that big old Oldsmobile or whatever and standing up and, and the parent realizes, again, this is before seat belts and, and car seats and all that. And the parent realizes, no, 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 that's not safe, right? And so she says, uh, you need to sit down, honey. And the kid refuses and stands, remains standing in that front seat while they're flying down the highway. No, you need to sit down. No, I'm going to stand up, you know. And finally, she says, if you don't sit down, I'm going to stop this car and I'm going to punish you, you know, whatever. We're going to, we're going to have all these uh, punishments and uh, uh, lays down the law. And, uh, and so the kid at that sits down. And after a few miles of silence, she looks over at her mom and she says, I want you to know in my heart, I'm still standing up. <laughs> It's really, uh, really true. We have this sort of heart rebellion that can happen, even if we have external conformity uh, and obedience to some law. Well, uh, Satan, it doesn't matter. You know, you're just food to him. So he he, he doesn't care. Uh, but God wants to deal with that heart disobedience. God wants more than just, as Satan says, uh, cattle who can become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. Uh, sons and daughters of the king. So he wants to somehow draw our will to be aligned with himself, but somehow retain our, our individuality. Well, how would you do that? By the way, that is such a beautiful paragraph and such and so powerful that you wonder like, man, screw tape, that's, that's really, really a lot of things to praise God. If, if you look in letter 19, I don't know what version uh, you're reading, but uh, but in letter 19, if, if you want to turn there, you can. If you can turn there uh, really quickly. If not, I'll just read it to you. He actually, this comes up later. He, he takes a couple other shots at old slub gob throughout the, the, uh, the book. And in letter 19, uh, he must have gotten in trouble for this paragraph he wrote uh, because he writes, um, he talks about, you know, the enemy's idea of love. And uh, he says, I hope right there in the, in the middle of the paragraph, I hope, my dear boy, you've not shown my letters to anyone. Not that it matters, of course. Anyone would see that um, the appearance of heresy into which I have fallen is purely accidental. Uh, in other words, he talks so much about the enemy's idea of love that he's accused apparently by the uh, diabolical heresy police of getting too close to heresy. And then he also writes, oh, by the way, I hope you understand, too, that some apparently uncomplimentary references to Slubgob were purely jocular. I have the highest respect for him. Uh, <laughs> so I didn't I didn't mean all that. Uh, so apparently in the backbiting uh, world of Lewis's hell here, uh, uh, screw tape gets busted for uh, this paragraph later. Anyway, back to the point. How would you... Um, how would you create a world where these beings would freely love you without just demolishing their free will, either by, by forcing obedience or forcing some over, you know, somehow overriding their free will with rewards? And the answer is the trough periods. That's what he writes. That's where, uh, picking up here in the next paragraph, and that is where the troughs come in. You must have often wondered why the enemy doesn't make more use of his power to be sensibly present to human souls in any degree he chooses and at any moment. In other words, 
he's saying, Wormwood, does it ever strike you as odd that God is God? He has all this power. Why doesn't he just appear and show himself to human beings? He would completely override their free will. You know, think of it this way. In Adam and Eve in the garden, when Satan tempts them to take that fruit, why didn't God just swoop in and go, no, no, don't do that, and completely override their free will? He certainly would have, you know. They've got this doubt, you know, that, 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 that the serpent has put into their minds. Why didn't God just show up and remove all the doubt? Why didn't he do it today? People doubt God. People doubt the resurrection. Why not just make a, a, a huge appearance and, and cast aside all doubt, override everybody's free will? Well, but you see, you continue, but you now see that the capital I irresistible and the capital I indisputable are the two weapons which the very nature of his scheme forbids him to use. That's why when Satan said, throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple, prove that you're that, that as you're falling those 15 or 45 stories or whatever it was as you're falling and right before you hit the ground angels swoop in and bring you to the ground ta-da and you can tell the you can tell the whole world see i told you i was really the messiah why not do that satan refuses to do uh, jesus refuses to do what satan tempts him to do why he says you shall not put the lord your god to the test I'm not just going to override everybody's free will. Like I'm just going to do some parlor trick that forces everybody's obedience. Power can force obedience, but only love can summon a response of love. Merely to override a human will, as his felt presence in any but the faintest and most mitigated degree would certainly do. In other words, in other words little, little hints of God's glory is all we can handle as human beings. So mitigated means lessened, right? The smallest little hint of his presence would be enough to immediately shatter all doubt. And it would be for, for him, in other words, it would be for God useless. He cannot ravish. He can only woo. A powerful uh, verse, uh, famous, uh, uh, <laughs> powerful. I call it a powerful verse. I meant a powerful uh, line there uh, from Lewis. He's not uh, he's not writing canonical scripture here. Uh, <laughs> it's still a great line. He cannot ravish. Ravish means to kidnap, to take by force. Uh, woo means to to um, you know to love, to encourage, to to attract. Um, there is a uh, there's a, a movie with Jim Carrey and Morgan Freeman called Bruce Almighty and uh, it's been years since I've seen the movie so I don't know if I can if, if I can or should recommend it but I tell you the uh, the stuff in there about free will I've never forgotten I thought it was really really clever uh, some of the the philosophical things that they bumped into in that movie if you're if you're not familiar uh, God is played by Morgan Freeman of course with that Morgan Freeman's great deep voice no one's surprised Jim Carrey plays the character of Bruce and uh, he's got this uh, this love interest, and he wants to make, uh, I think it's Jennifer Aniston's character, I forget her name, fall in love with him. And uh, uh, so anyway, uh, uh, God gives to this character, Bruce, all of the powers of God. And he says there's only two rules. You can't let anybody know you're God, and you can't mess with free will. And, uh, and so he... Uh, <laughs> Uh, for a while enjoys all these powers, but then suddenly it, it begins to dawn on him. This is a really a tough task because the one thing he cares about is this relationship with this woman and he can't make her love him. And so uh, she leaves him. He, this rain is pouring on him. And there's this incredible scene in the movie when he talks with Morgan Freeman and he basically says, I, I don't get it, God. How can you make someone love you without affecting free will? 
And Morgan Freeman has most, one of the most incredible lines in the movie. He says, welcome to my world, Bruce. <laughs> and when you figure that one out, please do me a favor and let me know. Uh, it's, it's a pretty profound line. Uh, God could just swoop in and reveal himself and make everyone love him. But then uh, what quality of love would it be? Uh, to you wouldn't have a free will. You, wouldn't you just at that point have a robot who was just doing what they were naturally programmed to do in that environment, in that setup? And so God wants this ignoble idea, according to Screwtape, this ignoble idea to eat the cake and have it. Uh, in, in American Anglicized, we, we would say uh, he wants to have his cake and eat it too. And that expression just means have it both ways. Um, his ignoble idea is to eat the cake and have it. The creatures are to be one with him, but yet themselves. So merely to cancel them or assimilate them will not serve. Oh, sure, he's prepared to do a little overriding at the beginning. He'll set them off with communications of his presence, which, though faint, seem great to them with emotional sweetness and easy conquest over temptation. But he will never allow this uh, state of affairs to last long. Sooner or later, he withdraws, if not in fact, at least from their conscious experience, all those supports and incentives he leaves the creature to stand up on its own legs, to carry out from the will alone duties which have lost all relish. It's during those trough periods, much more than during the peak periods, that it is growing into the sort of creature he wants it to be. Powerful, famous paragraph here. He's saying, oh, sure, uh, I say God can only uh, woo, he won't ravish, but sure, in the beginning... And how many of us can remember when we were first saved, that closeness we felt with God and that, that, that easy victory over temptation? Uh, many of us can relate to that. You know, when you first got saved, you felt that. And so Screwtape says, yeah, that'll happen a lot. He'll, he'll feel very close, but he never allows that state of affairs to last long. Sooner or later, he withdraws, if not in fact, at least in their conscious experience. In other words, he may not actually be withdrawing his presence. He just allow, he's, he's withdrawing your conscience experience of it. Uh, like when the little kid is learning to ride a bike, you've daddy's got, got his hand on that seat as the, as the bike is going. And, 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 and little by little, you, you, you eventually there's that intermediate phase when the kid is just learning to ride the bike, you put a real steady hand on that seat and make sure it doesn't wobble too far. But as you find they're getting more and more balance, you eventually uh, will re will remove your hand. And sometimes I don't even take my hand off fully, but I'll, I'll take it off every now and then and wave to the kid to show him, look, I don't have any hands. Even if I actually do, I'm not going to let them fall. You know, um, either way, God is, is removing that experience and letting that person go into trough period. And the poor kid's thinking, you know, God, where, where, where'd you go? Have you taken away your presence? I don't feel you anymore. I don't, uh, I don't sense your presence. Well, it's during those periods that we're learning to rely on something more than just a feeling. Hence, the prayers offered in the state of dryness are those which please him best. So here you've got somebody who's not just relying on the, the warm, fuzzy feelings of God or the warm, fuzzy feelings of emotion. He's faithfully walking in obedience. See, we can drag our patients along by continual tempting because we design them only for the table and the more their will is interfered with, the better. But he cannot tempt to virtue as we do to vice. In, in other words, um, uh, uh, with vice, when, when, when Satan tries to tempt you with a sin, 
Uh, he has to mess with your will. He has to make you believe stuff that's not true, at least temporarily, right? You have to you have to become temporarily insane. If you're a Christian, you have to temporarily go into a mode of insan insanity to go do sin. Why? Because you know that it's not right. You, you you know enough to know. You know that God has provided whatever it is that you're looking to get in this in this vice. Moreover, not only will you go into temporary insanity, Satan will put a really short-term reward right there. You know, yeah, but if I if I indulge if I indulge in in gluttony or in lust or tell this lie, there's like an immediate payoff. Well, God can't do that with virtue. Think about it. If he did, then over time we would just be loving because of the immediate reward, some dopamine hit that we get from from being unselfish or loving. And over time you'd wonder, am am I really do I have any love in my heart at all? Or am I just uh, following some immediate uh, reward, which is really uh, pretty selfish? Um, so, so God's not going to tempt somebody to virtue the way the enemy can just tempt to vice because he actually wants a son or a daughter who freely obeys him. He doesn't just want uh, uh, food to eat like Satan. And so here, uh, leaves, uh, Screwtape leaves with th this incredible passage. I've quoted it many times. I hope that, uh, I hope that you'll underline it or, or it struck you like it strikes so many people. He wants them to learn to walk and must therefore take away his hand. And if, if only the will to walk is really there, he's pleased even with their stumbles. What a beautiful picture of somebody growing into maturity and faith. Early on, we rely so much on our feelings. Uh, but Screwtape's pointing out here, yeah, God will do this thing where he wants you to move from just your feelings to realize, wait a minute, salvation is not, my salvation is not based on a feeling. It's based on the fact of what Jesus Christ did for me and I'm going to praise him. I'm not going to I'm not going to doubt in the dark what I what he told me in the light. What I know from scripture is true even if I'm in a good uh season, a good circumstance or a bad circumstance, I'm going to praise him and I'm going to offer my obedience. Uh can you imagine w when that happens? That means you're you're learning to walk. God can only bring you to that point through suffering. I mean, I mean how, how can you know? Uh, uh, look, I want my kid to walk and, 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 and all three kids, I'll, I'll never forget that you're holding them and you're holding them steady. But every parent knows there's a moment when you, you take away the hand from the kid's perspective. They're thinking, what do you, do you hate me? Are you, are you crazy? Why would you remove support from me? I'm going to fall and potentially get hurt. Well, I, I'm never going to let you truly get hurt. Don't worry, but I am going to take away my hand and you're right. You may fall. And I am pleased even with your stumbles, as long as the desire to walk is there. I'm teaching you to grow up. I'm teaching you maturity. And Screwtape realizes when those trough periods, when the patient no longer feels God's presence the way he used to, but still obeys, whoo, look out. Here's how he says it. Our cause, in other words, the cause of hell and, and, and all of Satan's uh, work, our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring, but still intending to do our Father's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he's been forsaken and still obeys. That's a problem. And I think, how could he not be thinking of the ultimate example of a human looking around, feeling God forsaken and obeying anyway? How could he not have been thinking of our Lord Jesus on Calvary's cross? When he cries out from the cross, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And yet, at the end of that psalm, which he's quoting the beginning of that psalm, but if you read on to the, the psalm, there it is in the end of that psalm. The psalmist professes, yet, yet I know, I know exactly who you are, God. You will be praised. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold. And Jesus, what does he do? He, he endures the, the scorn of the cross. He, he, he suffers all of that shame on the cross and, and is victorious all the way to the death and the burial and then the resurrection on the other side. He faithfully endures the ultimate trough, which was Calvary's cross. Here he feels God forsaken and obeys anyway. Uh, Philippians chapter 2 says, uh, says it this way. He was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name that's above every name. Uh, that at the name of Jesus, by the way, every knee will bow and tongue confess of things on the earth and under the earth. So, so yes, Screwtape's knee will bow. He's certainly, uh, I think, here thinking of the ultimate example of a human being looking around going, I'm in these terrible circumstances. I feel God forsaken, but I'm going to obey uh, because my faith is not built on warm, fuzzy feelings. It's built on a fact uh, of uh, Jesus and his love for me and his resurrection. Now, having said all that, the, but of course, the troughs afford opportunities to our side also. Next week, I'll give you some hints on how to exploit them. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. So here you have uh, Screwtape saying, look, for, for the next letter, I'll show you, we can use the troughs too. But this letter has primarily been a letter all about how uh, God uses those trough periods in our life. All right, well, uh, I talked for 40 minutes here. And so uh, we'll hopefully uh, have time for a little bit of questions. And then uh, uh, I can do, uh, left myself about uh, 10 or 15 minutes to cover letter nine. And so we'll turn our attention to that. All right, we continue with letter nine. Letter nine, it deals with, remember, what to do with these trough periods. Okay, how do we exploit these depressions, these dark times in the law of undulation? And here's what he suggests. My dear Wormwood, I hope my last letter has convinced you that the trough of dullness or dryness through which your patient is going at present will not of itself give you his soul, but needs to be properly exploited. What forms the exploitation should take, I will now consider. Everybody got it? In other words, he's just saying it doesn't matter just that he's going through peaks and troughs. We've got to figure out how to exploit the troughs. And here are some ways. In the first place, I have always found that the trough periods of the human undulation provide excellent opportunity for all sensual temptations, particularly those of sex. So here he's going to talk about sensual temptations. That'd be gluttony, in this case, lust. And he talks about why. This may surprise you because, of course, there's more physical energy and therefore more potential appetite at the peak periods. But you must remember that the powers of resistance are then also at their highest. So you might think, you know, when he's in a really celebratory mood and, and, and he's surrounded by friends and everything's going great, that's when to strike and offer him all these temptations of the flesh. Yeah, but, but actually, screw tape's saying there, there's some safeguards sort of built into that in a way because he's also uh, um, got all these, uh, uh, well, as he puts, uh, powers of resistance. The health and spirits which you want to use in producing lust can also, alas, be very easily used for work or play or thought or innocuous merriment. In other words, he, he really wants to get him to sin, in this case, sensual pleasure or lust. But 
ah, who knows, he may just, you know, uh, use all that energy and appetite for something that, that's harmless or even good, which would be, of course, terrible for screw tape. No, he says, the attack has a much better chance of success when the man's whole inner world is drab and cold and empty. And it is also to be noted that trough sexuality is subtly different in quality from that of the peak, much less likely to lead to the milk and water phenomenon which the humans call, quote, being in love. You hear uh, how Screwtape hates that thought. Much more easily drawn into perversions, much less contaminated by those generous and imaginative and even spiritual concomitants. A concomitant means a, a go with, something that goes with it which often render human sexuality so disappointing. Now, let's, let's back up. It's a pretty complicated sentence. He's saying not only are the trough periods when he's dark and alone and drab and, and filled with depression, that's when to strike with sensual temptation. He says not only is it easier to get him to fall into the trap at that point, but it's actually a different kind of quality. Uh, Screwtape actually hates some of the things that go with uh, sex and sexual temptation. Of course, he hates sex. He'll talk about that in just a second because ultimately all pleasure is uh, a gift from God. He'll talk about that in just a second. Satan can't create uh, pleasures. He can't create anything. But he says the quality is going to be different. And and and, and, he, and part of the thing Screwtape hates about uh, uh, when, when two people, you know, even, even like he says, human sexuality can be so disappointing because so often it's surrounded by what? Things like love. Uh, uh, things like... Uh, giving unselfishly of your life to another person in this covenant called marriage. These are the things that Screwtape hates. He wants to avoid all that. And so he says, much better, get him alone and dark and drab and, 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 and the perversions of, of sex. And again, I don't, I don't know how, you know, here's Lewis, 1941, how um, relevant he is because he's talking about things at such a deep human level uh, but, um, you know, I think about uh, the temptations uh, for uh, pornography and, and, and there would be an example of a perversion of what uh, God intended for, for, for human sexuality. So he uses an example of uh, substance abuse and, and he picks on alcohol, though in our modern day, he could just as easily pick on painkillers or the opioid addiction or any of these things. It's, it's the same principle applies. Is that you're much more likely, he writes, to make your man a sound drunkard by pressing drink on him as an anodyne when he is dull and weary than by encouraging him to use it as a means of merriment among his friends when he's happy and expansive. An anodyne is a, a, a something that's capable of soothing the pain, something to numb his depressed spirit. He's saying you're actually more likely to get this person to become a full-blown alcoholic if you can tempt him uh, to drink in these lonely, dark, drab times rather than, uh, you know, the quote-unquote party animal who's, you know, at, at, the, at the peak of merriment using alcohol as a means of celebration. Now, again, Screwtape is going to be happy anytime somebody uses alcohol to, uh, to excess and becomes a drunkard. <laughs> but, but, but again, he's trying to really... Um, capitalize and exploit those trough periods. Here's why. He writes, never forget that when we're dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. I know we've won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it's his invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. 
Very important point, Screwtape acknowledges. He concedes. For all the things the demons can do and all the things Satan can do and all the things that hell can do, the one thing they can't do is create. They are creatures. Only God is the creator. So what can he do? If he can't create uh, an anti-pleasure, he can't create a sin like he wants to, so to speak. So what can he do? All we can do, he writes, is encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. That is so good. That is a line worth underlining. Here, letter nine, he's talking about these sensual pleasures and how the trough period is a time that Satan wants to strike in a person's life on these things. Underline, really consider that sentence. All we can do is encourage the humans to take the pleasures that the enemy made and pervert them, twist them, get them out of the appropriate time or out of the appropriate way or out of the appropriate degree to which the enemy intended. So, so, so take any, uh, take food, God's good gift of food. Satan cannot create unfood, <laughs> right? Uh, I guess you could make the case some of the things I've cooked uh, borderline on the anti-food, unfood category. But anyway, he can't, you get what I'm saying. He can't create unfood. And the pleasure of eating, he can't create like an actual opposite anti-pleasure of eating. So what can he do? Well, to make eating a sin, all he can do is take the good gift of food and pervert it twist it. How? Well, there's any number of ways. He could pervert it into gluttony. See, now we're taking food, it says here, in degrees which God has forbidden. We're taking food in a degree that God has forbidden. Or an eating disorder like anorexia or bulimia. Now, Satan, what, what he's done is he's managed to, to, to take God's good gift of food and twist it. Uh, uh, and it, it's so sad to, to watch people uh, struggle with these things because you see how Satan has taken what should be a good thing and... Uh, 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 in this way, exploited our weaknesses. So if you use the example of food, when it comes to sex, it should be a, a pretty easy analogy to understand. The Christian sexual ethic is so simple. It hasn't changed. Uh, cultures change. All over the world right now, there are a million different uh, sexual ethics based on cultures throughout even in any particular culture. If you go back in history, and sometimes you don't have to go back for very far, you'll find many different uh, sexual ethics. But the, the, great, the great thing is the Bible's sexual ethic hasn't changed. So as a Christian, we follow the biblical sexual ethic, and it's this. It's, it's two things. Complete chastity. That's the old-fashioned word, but it just means purity. Complete purity in singleness. Complete faithfulness in marriage. That's it. Complete purity when you're single. Completely faithful when you're married. That's it. There's no third option. There's no nothing. Christians define marriage in a, in, a, in a certain way. We define marriage according to what we believe the Bible teaches uh, between a man and a woman, a lifetime commitment. And, and so, you know, you, you might have to define a few terms in there, but really that's it. it purity and singleness, faithfulness in marriage. Now, you, you know, there may be some who would say, well, I don't like that uh, uh, sexual ethic, or I disagree with that. You have every right uh, to disagree with that. But, but, as a Christian, I, I'm not defensive about this. As a Christian, I'm just like, look, I, I don't get to make the rules. I, I follow all sorts of things in the New Testament. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I, for example, I'm not allowed to live materialistically. I'm not, I'm not allowed to live as well off as I could because as a Christian, I'm supposed to be giving a portion of my income away. But that's okay. You may think that's arbitrary. You may think that's ridiculous. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not anybody's judge. Uh, but the, the biblical sexual ethic, which I have to hold to, is complete purity in singleness, complete faithfulness in marriage. 
Um, I would push back a little bit, though, to somebody who says, no, that's wrong. I would say, now, wait a minute. You have a sexual ethic, too. And if you think my sexual ethic is just arbitrary uh, or wrong, then, then you'll, the burden of proof is on you to show me how your sexual ethic is not equally arbitrary. I get mine from the authority of the scriptures, which I believe is the word of God. If you don't believe that, you got your sexual ethic from somewhere, and you could say, yeah, it's what I think. Okay, then you're the authority there. But either way, we both have a standard. We both uh, uh, have a, an ethic we hold to. And I think if everybody has an ethic, we start to, we start to really think, and we're, we're actually pretty narrow in our view of whatever it is. Um, uh, I think people should believe this about the sexual ethic and nothing else is a way that's no more um, uh, limiting, uh, no more um, uh, uh, narrow, I guess, objective, a truth claim as any other. Um, and so I just think we need to be honest about that. And that'll provide much healthier conversations as I think the sexual ethic has been brought to the forefront of uh, a cultural hot topic right now. Uh, and I, I, you know, I, I hope uh, we, I could do my part to try to dial down the sort of rancor and the and the defensiveness that people feel. I can't speak for everybody, but as a Christian minister, I don't think Christians should feel defensive at all. We we have a sexual ethic uh, that is uh, complete purity in singleness, complete faithfulness in marriage. That's it. Uh, those are the commands uh, that, that that we're called to follow. Well, anyway, Screwtape's uh, uh, point there is since they can't create a a a sin, so to speak. They can't create a, an anti-pleasure. They can only take God's good gifts and pervert them and twist them. And that's why he continues, hence we always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that which is least natural, least redolent of its maker, and least pleasurable. Redolent means um, uh, strongly reminiscent of, right? Uh, smells like. So we want, we want to take, we want to get the human to engage in things that are so far removed from any of the pleasure that even that even rem, reminds us that this stuff was once connected to God. Uh, food is God's good gift to the people. Sex, this is God's good gift to the people. Sex is not evil and bad and wrong. Uh, it's God's good gift and therefore must be, uh, 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 that gift must be received in the way he intended it. Again, it, within uh, the confines of marriage. So here's his formula. Now you tell me how far ahead of his time Lewis was. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. <laughs> I mean, what do we know about the science of addiction? Right there. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. To achieve the same uh, uh, whatever uh, endorphin or dopamine rush or whatever that a drug uh, gives to give you that pleasure you need more to achieve the same amount of pleasure and the pleasure gets less and less and there has to be more and more until you're so deep in the cycle of addiction that it's just not fun anymore. And now Satan is thrilled. He says, it's it's more certain. Now he's really got you. And it's better style to get the man's soul and give him nothing in return. That's what really gladdens our father's heart. That's a chilling sentence. And he writes, and the troughs are the time for beginning the process. Yikes. It's absolutely true. To get you hooked, to get you addicted on any of these uh, sensual pleasures. 
But he has another. <clears throat> there is an even better way of exploiting the trough. I mean through the patient's own thoughts about it. As always, the first step is to keep knowledge out of his mind. Don't let him suspect the law of undulation. Let him assume that the first ardors of his conversion might have been expected to last and ought to have lasted forever and that his present dryness is an equally permanent condition. In other words, make him think, wait a minute, I should be on a trough period forever. Everything should be a spiritual mountaintop. Having once got this misconception well fixed in his head, now you've got options. He says, you may proceed in various ways. And it depends on the kind of guy we're dealing with. It all depends on whether your man is of the desponding type who can be tempted to despair or the wishful thinking type who can be assured all is well. The former type is getting rare among the human. If your human belongs to that, if, if your patient should happen to belong to it, everything's easy. Here's what you've got to do. In other words, if he's the desponding type who could be tempted to despair, if he's the kind of guy who says, this isn't right, I shouldn't be in a trough period. I should be filled uh, with, the, with the joy of the Lord. And what about all these verses that talk about the joy of the Lord and, and uh, in, in, in the Father's hands are, are, are pleasure, in his right hand are pleasures forevermore. You know, what, what, what's going on here? Well, everything's easy. Just keep him out of the way of experienced Christians. <laughs> In other words, it, all you have to do is walk with a mature Christian for a couple hours and realize they'll tell you, wait a minute, it's not all sunshine and roses, they'll tell you. Uh, you're going to walk through this suffering and God's going to be with you. But he says, that's okay. It's an easy task nowadays, which of course is just, uh, you know, he's taking a shot here saying, uh, you know, mature Christians are, are pretty hard to find. So, and direct his attention to the appropriate passages in scripture. Here again, Satan knows scripture and he can use it. And here he's suggesting uh, keep him, basically, keep him out of the Psalms. Because if, if, if your patient finds the Psalms, he'll realize, wait a minute, wait a minute. These people are crying out. They're in great pain. So there is a vocabulary of faith for what I'm feeling here. Or keep him out of the book of Job. Direct him to just those passages that talk about the joy of the Lord and and the, all the, the, the joys that he can bring. And don't let him see that God also uh, promises. Jesus himself says, in this world, you will have trouble. Um, yeah, so then set him to design on the, set him to work on the desperate design of recovering his old feelings by sheer willpower. And the game is ours. In other words, have him think, I'm going to get back to that mountaintop. Even if I have to do it all by my own and, 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 and even without God, I'm just going to force my way to, to think of myself as, a, as, as being back on top of a mountain spiritually. Well, uh, you know, then he's won. If he's of the more hopeful type, which Screwtape says is more common, then your job is to make him acquiesce in the present low temperature of his spirit and gradually become content with it. In other words, basically just say, well, I guess it is what it is. This is going to be my life now. I guess I'll always be in a trough period. Persuade him that it's not so low after all. In a week or two, you'll be making him doubt whether maybe the first days of his Christianity were not perhaps a little excessive. Yeah, why did I ever even want that spiritual mountain? Talk to him about the moderation in all things, right? If you can once get him to the point of thinking that, quote, religion is all very well up to a point, you can feel quite happy about his soul. See, a moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all and more amusing. In other words, this, this sort of half-hearted pseudo-faith that thinks, oh, you know, may, maybe I don't need a relationship with God. Maybe I was just, I don't know, maybe I was going through a phase. And that leads him to the final point. Another possibility is that of direct attack on his faith. When you've caused him to assume that the trough is permanent, can you not persuade him that, quote, his religious phase is just going to die away like all his previous phases? Now, of course, there's no conceivable way of getting by reason from the proposition, quote, I am losing interest in this, to the proposition, this is false. But as I said before, it is jargon, not reason, you must rely on. The mere word phase will very likely do the trick. 
I assume that the creature has been through several of them before, they all have, and that he feels superior and patronizing to the ones he's emerged from. Not because he's really criticized them, simply because they're in the past. Keeping well fed on hazy ideas of progress and development and the historical point of view, I trust, and give him lots of modern biographies to read. The people in them are always emerging from phases, aren't they? You see the idea. Keep his mind off the plain antithesis between true and false. And that is a good word for everybody, uh, I think, in our culture today. Uh, we got to stay focused. What is true and false? And so many times, instead of an idea being true or false, it's critiqued on whether it's old-fashioned or whether it's progressive or whether that, that deserves to be canceled. That's not politically correct. Well, nobody's asking about that. The, the question is, is it true? Is it false? If it's true, it needs to be kept. It's, if it's false, it needs to be discarded. Don't talk to me about old-fashioned. Logically, I'm losing interest in this, or this is an old-fashioned idea. does not logically follow this is false. You know what else is old-fashioned? The wheel. The wheel is old-fashioned. It was invented a long time ago, and I'm sure glad I got four of them on my car. <laughs> They're really useful. So I don't. they work. I, I don't care uh, if ideas are old-fashioned or, or are they on the right side of history or whoever came up with that phrase. What I care about is what's true. I don't want to be on the right side of history. I want to be on the right side of God. I want to be on the right side of truth. Well, nice shadowy expressions like, it was a phase. I've been through all that. And don't forget the blessed word, adolescent. In other words, yeah, Christianity was just something. I was an adolescent phase. I guess I grew out of it. And then you'll have him. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Hmm. A lot there in letter nine. I don't know how much time I have uh, left for a discussion on this uh, Wednesday night group. Uh, but I hope that... Uh, uh, th these letters have been helpful and uh, we'll see you next time.